Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, a pretty entertaining couple of days, as we all know, right? This started uh, at the beginning of the week when Jim Rutherford regaled us all on Monday with uh, just where things are at, both on the medical side and in so many other areas surrounding the Canucks. And Drancher and I needed to make sure we did a live room at some point this week. And he, you've heard him on Sportsnet at uh, 6.50 during the week and certainly myself with Harm on the VanCast. So we thought, look, we got to bring in a guest. we got to bring in Frankie Corrado, who... Uh, works as part of our team on TSN and is, is certainly a, a guy that everybody in the Vancouver market knows and loves. So, Frankie, thanks for doing this. This is going to be awesome to have you with us. That's very nice of you to say that everyone in the Vancouver market likes me. But uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I'm very happy to be here. It's a fickle market. You know, I mean, they sometimes like me. They sometimes don't. They generally don't like Drancer. They sometimes do. You know, it just, it's kind of one of those things. To not be oh, liked in this market, to not be liked in this market means there's a lot of good about you. <laughs> yeah, everyone has good days and bad days. <laughs> See, I like to think that at the very least they enjoy not liking me. That's that's what I like to think. But there's right. no doubt about that. That is the truth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess as the resident villain of this particular live room. I'll start us off because I do want to get Frankie's thoughts and we'll obviously open the floor to additional questions from our VIPs. So make sure to put your hand up if you'd like to ask Farhan or me or far more likely Frank Corrado a question and we'll get to you in due time. But first, we'll we'll have a bit of a roundtable with the three of us and, and we'll interview Frankie a bit because, you know, Farhan is teed off on this presser uh, and everything going ra- on around the team. I've done the same but Frankie, you're outside the market, and yet we know how close, uh, closely you pay attention to this team. What are your thoughts on <laughs> all, all of what's spinning around this it's, organization at the moment? Oh, so, so what I do is I try and imagine myself in that locker room and coming to the rink every day. And what would that feel like? And it just feels like there would be an avalanche of distractions. And and the best way I can put it, it, it feels like it would be an episode of a soap opera, like day after day, continuing storylines, just when you think things can't get any weirder or any more obscure or any worse, or even any more toxic. Uh, it, it feels like something else comes up and, um, I feel like people who watch the Canucks from other markets kind of have this intrigue. It's like, 
it's almost like, what are we going to see next? You know, we're not necessarily watching the Canucks for the hockey. Like we're not necessarily watching to see how well Elias Pettersson is playing or how Quinn Hughes is developing or um, another like Bo Horvat season. We're watching and we're paying attention because it's like, what are they like? What are they going to do next there? What's going to come up in the media? Who's going to say what? Um, and just, just from a player's point of view, that would be, that would be a tough, tough environment to be going to every single day in the dressing room. Yeah, look, it, it's difficult. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, when you look at how Bruce Boudreaux has been handling, for those that haven't heard the latest, there are more reports that have been coming out in, in the last few hours that this could get done as early as Monday, that Bruce Boudreaux could be coaching Friday and Saturday. And then instead of Bruce, there it is. It'll be Bruce, there he goes. And, you know, by Monday, we could be, uh, having a conversation with Rick Talkin as the new head coach of the Vancouver Canucks. Have you seen a situation get dragged out like this? No. The way this one has, and and a guy just being left twisting in the wind, a good hockey man? No, this is, this is I, I've never seen anything like it. I've never experienced anything like it as a player. Usually, if, if a coach is going to get fired, it's very hush-hush. Uh, because think about it, like, what's, what's Bruce's incentive to practice and coach the team the next couple of days? I understand you're contractually um, obligated, but I mean, it's, it's, it's really painful to watch him kind of get paraded out every single day. There he is. And then the camera goes on him and he's got to do practice and he's got to do meetings and, um, you know, all for what, what, just to know that you're getting fired and, and the team's been openly flirting with, um, you know, your potential replacement in the media. And, um, it just, it, it hasn't been handled well. And, you know, you can say that in hockey, no one really owes you anything. Like there's, there's really not much loyalty that's involved um, in being a hockey player, being a coach. But with that being said, you do need to treat your employees. You need to treat your staff with a certain amount of dignity, um, you know, from an optics point of view. And even just how do you like, how do you conduct your business? Like, is that how you want to conduct yourself? And, you know, for, for me, the answer would be no, that's, that's not the way you do things. Like there's, there's a certain level of professionalism that you owe, um, your, your staff and your employees, regardless of the, you know, lack of loyalty, let's say in, in professional sports. And I am not saying everyone needs to be, um, you know, loyal to a fault, but, um, you do need to treat people a certain way. Yeah. I mean, for, as a, as a player, right? Like put your player hat back on for a second. I know for me, when this went down earlier and we knew that, you know, G- when Jim Benning's last days were there and we had heard that they were talking to, Jim Rutherford and even even with Travis Green we kind of knew that the Boudreaux thing was out there but it it turned around really quickly and we could kind of expect ownership to fumble the ball or even you know Jim Benning in certain cases when he wasn't necessarily the most polished of figures but Jim Rutherford is an extremely well-regarded hockey guy Um, like to me that's kind of the most surprising part that he's at the head of this but also as a player what do you feel like if, if you're that next player that potentially is looking to get involved with this organization or a player that's in the organization that's got to make a decision on his long-term future? And certainly sure. all eyes are going to be on Elias Pettersson over the next few months. Like, what do you think? Is this what you want to be involved in? Okay. So think about it this way. If you're a really good player, Farhan, and you have options around the league and your money is probably going to be comparable, let's say in other markets, you're looking at it thinking, well, I see stability elsewhere. I see I'm not going to have to come to the rink every day and deal with another soap opera. I know there's a good coach there. I know um, there's a certain way that they operate and run their 
their operation that, you know, lends itself to sustainable success. So if you're in that situation and you're confident in your abilities, you look at it and say, I think I'm out of here. Like, I, I think I want something a little more stable, um, you know, a little more sustainable. If you're a guy that is going to get overpaid by Vancouver and you're looking at it thinking, this contract that Vancouver is offering me is not available for me elsewhere. I can put up with the soap opera because I'm making X amount of dollars more than I probably would in another situation. So, so you can put up with it. So then that's the kind of player you attract, right? Like in free agency and um, you know, those kinds of things. So it, it, it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous line. Players talk like everyone talks around the league. Everyone knows, you know, the reputations of teams, how they operate, what they do. So, you, you know, you, you really want to have as as clean of a reputation as possible as far as how you how you operate things. Frank, with regards to what you were just talking about in terms of all that goes into players' decisions, particularly when they've got options, right? I just wonder how much the Canucks are climbing uphill, not just because of the instability thing, but also... Does anyone see a clear path here to this team winning? You know, and and I just wonder over time if that becomes something that you know really is is going to be the Canucks' major headache in talks with Pedersen and, and company is do we have a path to winning here? Well, I, and that's that's the biggest challenge for me because when I look at this and I look at the plan that Jim Rutherford laid out and he talked about what he covets in the way of you know, that, that reclamation project player that's in their early to mid twenties that maybe didn't work out in their first uh, go around with whatever team they were on. And now they, you know, they can come here and they can extract some value and, and try to shortcut this in less than three years, you know, and then you talk about buyouts and things of that nature. And when, when I look at the situation, I just think they're going to continue to double down on the same problems. And there is no light at the end of the tunnel, because if they make a buyout, the first thing they're going to do is spend that money. And if they spend that money on the wrong guy, where we where are we going to be? What are we going to be left with, right? If they, if they get, in order to replace Bo Horvat, they're going to have to spend six million bucks on it on a mid level center instead of spending eight million dollars on Bo Horvat. And so you're probably going to overpay somebody to give them an opportunity that they weren't getting elsewhere. And we're going to continue to get into this cycle. Where within the next couple of years we got to make the playoffs, and in order to do that, you heard Frank talk about the type of player that will come here, and we've seen the type of player that will come here. You know, when they've got to overpay and overterm to get guys here, we've seen that, and they're going to have to do that because of how they've presented themselves as an organization in the last twelve months. With that money and buyouts, what they're, they're going to wind up spending it, and we're going to be talking about the same things every year. Yeah, you know, fa- more frequently than that. What do we do? How do they shed money? Farhan, sorry, I uh, I couldn't hear you guys, so I I jumped off. I jumped back yeah, on. But here's here's the one thing that people haven't really talked about yet that I haven't heard much in, in the Vancouver market, like the Benning regime with with Wisebrod. Did they not fire a bunch of scouts, like really good scouts? And so you know, you talk about going a, a scorched earth rebuild. Well, you need people to find players. Like you, you can do that. You can you can acquire draft picks. You can you can go that route for sure. But if if you're not acquiring, you know, really good prospects and then bringing them along and 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 drafting and developing them, it, it's kind of 
it's not necessarily going to work. It's not a formality that it works. So mm-hmm. um, there, there still needs to be a lot of emphasis on that. It's a really good point. And obviously, the Canucks draft record uh, has, for most of its history, left a lot to be desired. And, and really, uh, the last three years in particular, you know, you look at Yoni Yermo over Justin Sordiff, you look at Danila Klimovich over Stankoven, over Matthew Nyes over any number of impact players, and you look at how Lekaramaki is trending, you know, I I think that's an interesting point. Like, do the Canucks even have the artillery, the weaponry they need in in the amateur scouting department to make hay if they were to do the futures forward plan that we've talked about? Frank, while you were gone, the question I wanted to ask you was really about how, you know, in addition to instability, how much of a factor, how much is this organization in particular going to be running uphill against the perception that this team, particularly after they lose Bo Horvat, isn't close to winning? Well, I think a ton, right? Like, I, I don't know how you're going to sell to players. Uh, like, everyone wants a pitch, right? Like, everyone's taking their, their calls around UFA season, and they want a pitch. They want to know, A, what's my role on the team, right? Like, that's kind of first and foremost. And then it's like, okay. Where's this team headed? What are what are we looking at here, right? And then, like, I don't know how you're going to pitch to players who everyone everyone knows what's up in the league. Everyone kind of pays attention to things. How are you going to pitch to them that this is a team where you know you're going to have um, success? And and you know, for for players that are signing relatively shorter deals, they kind of bank on getting to the playoffs and, and making a name for their for themselves that way. We always think of guys signing these big long-term deals, but that's not the reality for, for all the players in the league. Like players need to play on these two, three year deals at two, $3 million and, you know, score the overtime winner in playoffs or have a great performance if they really want to cash in. Um, or you're just, you're, you're kind of just another guy playing in the NHL. So that's kind of what, what helps separate you. I think it would be a really difficult pitch for guys, especially with the the coaching instability too. Like, you know, you've had now you're going to have three head coaches in the last two years. Like, it it doesn't exactly scream stability. Oh man, with uh, how from a hockey perspective, Frank, and I know you watch this team closely. I mean, do you buy that a new coach, that new structure, can help or? Are you seeing a team where some of the issues are maybe more personnel based? I, listen, I, I think I think Bruce Boudreaux has he's a very good coach. He's won a ton of games in the league. He's probably not regarded as more of a an X's and O's super structured kind of coach, um, and that's okay. Like that works for a lot of players. That works for for some teams. Um, so maybe you know maybe someone comes in and maybe tightens things up a little bit, but to expect a dramatic change because of that is foolish thinking. Uh, it, it, it is more of a personnel thing. And I'll, I'll just give you an example of what I like, you know, I, I like to watch defensemen, right. And I'm pretty spoiled here in Toronto. I know Vancouver, the, the market probably doesn't want to hear this I'm pretty spoiled here in Toronto. They're they're the, the, the way, the, the, the way their, their defense moves the puck. Like there's a lot of sneaky, good players who move the puck. And, and what it comes down to is how quick they process the play and how quick they can uh, make the right decision. And too many times I watch Vancouver's defensemen and I'm watching, I'm like, okay, you should have processed that like half a second ago. And, you know, the, the puck should have been on your stick, off your stick. You should have known where you were going with it already. Um, and too many, you know, it, it's very difficult. Like that's, 
you know, that's, I mean, that's something I struggled with as a player a ton, you know, so how many times I went back for a puck and I'm like, oh, I didn't check my shoulders. I have no idea where to put this thing. Right. And, you know, that's how you play. That's how you only play parts of five seasons in the league. Um, yeah, it's a good recipe for that. But, you know, so too many times I'm, I'm watching guys and, and this is probably with the exception of Quinn Hughes, but I'm watching guys on Vancouver's back end and it's it's a little slow to process. It's a little slow to execute. The execution level is not exactly higher. So it's like, OK, like no wonder you're 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 playing in your end a lot or you're having defensive breakdowns. And so um it's just that's something as a like a coach can't force feed you that that's something you need to execute on as a player. What about just their their puck management and not just the defenseman but the forwards as well and you know we've seen so many egregious turnovers over the last couple of seasons end up in the back of their net. I mean, yeah. How much can a new coach come in and improve that? Is that part of structural play or is that individual accountability? I always like I always thought that was individual accountability and I think I I probably grew up in a little bit of a different era compared to what a lot of these young players are playing in now. Like I remember as a young player even a, a minor hockey player, coaches would teach you about understanding the clock, under, understanding the score, and kind of like managing the game a little bit around that. And we talk about this all the time here on the radio. And it's like this new generation, they're playing to score goals. They're not always necessarily playing to win games. And, you know, a part of me doesn't necessarily blame them because they do need to produce a certain amount in order to get paid. And GMs are pretty ruthless when it comes to negotiations and arbitration and They'll do everything they can to to save a penny. So I, I can respect that for sure. Um, but at the end of the day, a coach can probably help you a little bit in the sense that video, this will come up. Hey, why did you like this is the decision point on the ice. You're at the offensive blue line. You chose to carry it and it got picked off your stick and they went the other way. Seems like a small thing, but it's a big thing as far as momentum for our team. Now, I'm not in the room. I can't speak to if the, if they're getting those kinds of, um, you know, that kind of feedback in, in meetings and stuff like that. But that's, you know, that's a way a coach can identify it. And so if someone else is going to put a lot of emphasis on that, then then yeah, there's, there's a chance that could be um, instilled in the group. But I mean, I, I still think that's, that's, that's part of your hockey IQ. Like that's kind of, you know, that's, that's your makeup as a hockey player. I think, players who get to the NHL are highly skilled and inte- and intelligent, but they're, they're, there's, there's still a certain amount of um, intelligence that needs to come from within. For you, 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 you talked about what Bruce Boudreaux is generally regarded as uh, stylistically or strategically as a coach. What do you see Rick Tockett as in that regard? Yeah. See, like, I don't know. And I played for Tockett. He was the assistant coach in Pittsburgh. Mind you, I was only there for, a, a very brief time while he was the assistant coach because he was gone the next year. I don't necessarily see Talkit as a, a super X's and O's structural guy. Um, I, I don't see him as loose as Bruce for sure, but he, he kind of just seems like he's in that middle ground, right? And um, like, for instance, you know, I played for Mike Babcock as much as I can't stand the guy. Like, you sit down for um, a video meeting with him. And you'll learn something about the tactics and the strategy of a game. And you'll walk away thinking, wow, that was that was well articulated. And I learned something there. Um, Mike Sullivan, another coach, the coach in Pittsburgh who talk it was under like he was the X's and O's kind of behind that operation there. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know if I see talk it as, as a, a super X's and O's guy, but I do see him as a, a smart hockey 
guy. And I know that sounds cliche, but, but in the sense that like, he'll be okay with teaching you um, things like puck management and he'll show that in video. And he's not afraid to not necessarily single guys out, but to, but to place an emphasis on that. Like, I I feel like he would have um, a little more ability to bring out the puck management in, in a video session. Well, there's certainly certain players that need that on that team, but, you know, <laughs> I want to ask you a bit about JT Miller, right? And he certainly carries a certain level of personality in that room. And Bruce has done his part in terms of, you know, if he's got to sit Brock Besser for performance, if you've got to sit Oliver Ekman Larson for performance, he's done that with high-paid <coughs> veteran guys. But JT Miller's another ball of, uh, ball of string here. Like, do you think Rick, personality-wise, has the ability – to hold JT Miller's feet to the fire when needed. I look at the way he was, like he was really close with Phil Kessel, Rick Tockett. And, you know, I know there was times during Phil's tenure in Toronto, people would point to conclusions and say, oh, maybe Phil's not very coachable. Well, he was very coachable in Pittsburgh and Rick Tockett was a big part of that. Um, and you know, the, the stuff that JT Miller has done this year, like, I don't love it personally. I don't like the banging your stick on the net. I don't like the not back checking, like not moving for 30 seconds on a shift, like not taking one stride. I, I, I don't like that. It kind of reeks and, um, don't for a second think that guys in the dressing room don't see that stuff and, and kind of roll their eyes at it. Uh, because there's really no place to hide, (laughs) you know, like guys are sitting on the bench the best players in the world. Everyone sees that kind of stuff. Guys don't like it. Um, you know, especially when, you know, other players don't necessarily have that kind of leash, right? Like that's the biggest thing. And in the NHL, not everyone has the same rope that they're given from the coach. And, and some players deserve a little more. Some players deserve a little less. But if you're watching a guy go out there and you're like, wait a second, this guy can do this and that, and he still goes out there and it's no big deal. Like where, where's the accountability? Um, so, I mean, anyways, like I think Rick Tockett probably has the personality. He's a very personable guy. He's a very relatable guy. So, so maybe he could be that, that voice that kind of gets through to Miller, but that's that for me, that, that would be a big issue. Like I would, I would not, I would not want to keep seeing that kind of stuff from that player with a new coach. Frankie, one thing that concerns me about, a player where you get those habits is like having worked around an NHL team. I'm, I'm a strong believer that a coach can only do so much, right? Like I, I, I find that fans and talking about coaches often vastly overrate their impact. I, I fundamentally yeah. think like uh, Patrice Bergeron coaches, the Boston Bruins, for example. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and so what worries me when I see something like that from a guy who's supposed to be the face of the franchise is what's the reaction in the room when, you know, backs are against a wall and, and you've got to be like, guys, we've got to play the right way. Like if you're, well, if you're playing you play the way, right way, like, yeah, you, like you, that's you the thing, man. That. Someone, no, but, th- and that's the thing. Like if you want to, if you want to open up the room to that and you want to start talking about boys, we got to play the right way. We got to do this. We got to do that. Like, I'm surprised no one chimes in and says, well, what are you doing, pal? Like, <laughs> you know, and I, I've seen that before. I've seen that in dressing rooms and, and you know what? Usually those are pretty like when someone speaks up like that, that's usually a pretty good dressing room because you're kind of holding someone accountable who's not holding themselves accountable. And and I've seen guys where they say, listen, I don't 
have it tonight. I have. I know I haven't been playing well for you guys. I know I got to be better, but as a group, we got to be better. And that adds a, a different level of respect for the group. And the group will have more respect for you if you frame it that way. Um, but just like the the stuff with the no back check and the 30 second isolated clips where you don't take a stride out there is is really is really hard to digest. And trust me, guys go to dinner on the road, guys talk about stuff. Like I don't know, I, I don't know anyone in the Canucks room at this point in my career. Um, but I mean I would I would have a hard time believing that guys don't talk about that stuff and kind of roll their eyes about it. Cause I, I know I would, I know I would like, if I saw that kind of stuff and then, you know, you're going to yell and scream at me and then you're, you're kind of pulling antics, you know, what seems like every single game. It's like, I don't know, man, take care of your own backyard first. Have you, have you been around a player that runs that hot and cold? Because there's been stages in Miller's career here where we talk about him being the guy that drags the Canucks into the fight. And then during COVID, you know, he's the guy that spoke up and, forced the league to change the schedule and obviously the 99 points last season, but then there's the other side of it. And, you know, there's the, the level of almost uncontrollable emotion from time to time. And yeah. and then those levels where he's the definition of lazy when at other times he's the definition of, you know, just complete character, right? Like, have you ever seen a guy that runs that hot and cold? No, I, I don't think I have. And I'll, I'll kind of tell you this too. So I was asked to participate in TSN's top 50 players um, list at the start of the season and I had JT Miller in my top 50. Like I think I had him between 45 and 50, let's say. But I, I for sure, I made a point of having him in my top 50 because I believe when he's playing his game to his best capabilities, that's what he is in the National Hockey League. And like Farhan, you kind of touched on it, like being a guy that drags his team into the fight. That's kind of what I... JT Miller at his best. That's kind of what I saw from him. Like, man, he's engaged. Um, you know, he plays on his toes. There's a certain level of drive to his game that I can really appreciate. There's a certain level of chippiness and physicality that I like. Um, so there, there's no doubt that that it's there. I would just love, and I'm sure the Canucks would love for him to find that and kind of cool it with the other stuff, cool it with the tantrums. You know, like everyone's everyone's going through the same frustrating season there on that team. You're not necessarily getting anything accomplished by by throwing tantrums and even just you know, if, if he's going to throw a tantrum at you and you're a player, let's say you're the goalie. I think it was Colin Delia that night that he was banging his stick on the net. Like the goalie doesn't go to the bench now and say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fired up here because because Millsy got me going. Like, I'm, I'm really going to be on my game now. Like, he he kind of goes to the bench and he's like, what the hell was that? Like, that was that was a clown show. Right. So like less less with that kind of stuff and, and more of the stuff that I know a lot of our colleagues at TSN had him in the top 50 as well for, for, for the reasons that I listed, because he's, you know, he has the capability to be that kind of player. Uh, so everybody, if you want to ask Frankie a question, we'll ask a few more here and then we'll, uh, and then we'll turn this over to you, the VIPs. If you want to ask Frankie a question, you can drop it in the chat or you can raise your hand and join us in the stage queue. We'll invite you up to the stage one by one. If you have your hand raised in the next 20 minutes, uh, I'll promise that you get up onto the stage. Uh, I think we should have time for that based on the amount of listeners we have joining us today. So uh, 20 minutes, raise your hand, we'll call you up. But I want to ask Frank a question just as, you know, a guy who, you know, fundamentally was like a def defensive-minded player, but you also had wheels, right? 
And yeah, that was that was, I guess, my mo. Like defense first guy, you know, pretty mobile. Uh, yeah. but nothing, nothing overwhelming offensively. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, you might have been ten years early to be totally. You're one of those guys who might have been ten years early, right? Right. Yeah. Um, now, with regards to how the games changed, I mean, I, I make the comparison, and I mostly do it so that Farhan, a big football guy, will understand me. Um, <laughs> that uh, that to me, uh, at this point in the NHL, moving the puck is akin to having like a good offensive line. In football, you, you can't have a good offense if you can't protect your QB. You can't score goals if you don't have defenders who can hit forwards in stride and, and as part of that, right, who can retrieve pucks and get it moving in the right direction without getting you bogged down in, in your own end. Yeah. Um, when you watch this Canucks defense play, like I, I use, I use sort of a, a basic phrase where I say the, the defense of this team is incompatible with the act of winning in the NHL. What do you see? Oh, that's, that's exactly what I see. And like one of the other ways that I think things have changed now too, Drancer, it's like, even when I broke into the league, that would have been 2013. There was a couple guys on your back end who were just bigger, slower guys. They were literally off the glass and out. And if there was a simple play to be had, they would make that play. Right. Now we're seeing teams with six man units where their third defense or their third pairing defensemen are five eleven or six feet, but they're just puck movers, right? They're not necessarily those big guys. And what's happening now is the onus is not just on defensemen to make outstanding breakout passes anymore. Like there's so much more emphasis, you know, the way teams practice and the way teams want to break out. It's five man units back, it's five man units up the ice. And like it's 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 like a non-negotiable. It's a prerequisite. Like you just need to be able to break the puck out through the middle of the ice when it's there, um, and tape to tape when you can. And you know, one thing teams do now is you know if they want to bypass a forecheck, everyone kind of knows. Everyone knows that's going to happen. And so yeah, it looks like a hard rim, but really everyone's read and understood that, mm. and they're kind of flooding one side of the ice. And you know, there's a little more. Um, predictability there from 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 a five-man unit so it, it has changed a little bit and the other thing like I remember coaches being like really placing an emphasis on we want our 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 one defenseman weak side defenseman has to join the rush and that was almost like a new thing like they were really pushing it as like this is new and 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 now it's like Everyone, all the good teams, they attack in four-man units. There's no way you're going to score off the rush if you're just attacking in, in, in three-man units. You just – teams back pressure way too much. And the other way it, it's changed more is, like, watch good teams play. Watch Tampa. Watch Boston. Watch how much their defense – watch Winnipeg. Mm. Josh Morrissey. Like, watch how much their defensemen are involved in offensive zone play. Like, gone are the days where defensemen stand on the blue line and just move side to side. Like you need to have guys that will cut through the middle of the ice. You need to have guys that will um, take off down the boards. You need to have guys who can run face-off plays. That's another underrated thing. Like a, a lot of the good teams have a number of playoff, uh, sorry, face-off plays that they run. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's been so much evolution to the game, even just the last 10 years and, you know, watching the Canucks, it, it just kind of feels stagnant. Like it, it feels like they're still playing that, and, and this is aside from Quinn Hughes, obviously, because I think he's really special offensively. But that's kind of like that's kind of what I see. It's like a lot of stagnant hockey, not necessarily connected in five man units up and down the ice. And um, 
it's that's why it's like it's like there's a five spot like we talk about this in toronto radio sometimes like when the canucks play there's going to be a five spot it's either going to be for them or against them and and most of the time it's it's against them or both yeah (laughs) yeah yeah i I remember my second season in in florida when i was working with the panthers bob bugner was always talking about seizing fourth man's ice and at the time we were one of the most aggressive teams in the league that team was extremely aggressive, and now every team plays more aggressive than that team did. Like, the evolution yeah. over the last five years is dizzying. How much do you think that's contributing to what we're seeing this year, where no lead's safe, where, where the offense is uh, king again? Yeah. Uh, do you, like, I think, what are your theories I, for this? I kind of think that goes back to, like, the whole puck management, game management thing. Like, so here's, here, like, a lot of these young players, I call it the Instagram era, right? Like a lot of these younger kids yeah. that are coming up, they're so skilled. They're so good, right? But they kind of grew up on this Frankie, hang on a second. Wait a minute. How, hang on a sec. How old are you? 30. And you've got the, these young kids. This is the third time you said these young kids. It, it's yeah. like you, you're, old, you're 30 years old. It's like you sound as old as Drancer looks. I, I feel old. I ask, you should see my MRI reports. I feel pretty old. <laughs> but like, it's, it's like they, they grew up just going through these like hockey school skates where they go around a million pylons and videotape it and go bar down. It's all great stuff. It's all awesome. But we've kind of lost a little bit of the game management. And, you know, like a team like Tampa, like they, they, what impresses me about them is there's so many games where they don't necessarily have their stuff. Right. They might not have their A stuff. Um, it may not be a game that's like suitable for them, let's say, but they found a way to win the game. And I just think that's a little bit of a lost art nowadays. Um, and I, I just kind of come back to that whole like, you know, not necessarily like we don't necessarily have a ton of young players who learned how to manage the game. And so, you know, when, when you play that style, Drancer, where you have four men in the attack all the time, you want your defensemen joining in the offensive zone. I think it's great, but there also still becomes, there still comes a point, you know, in your team's games where you look at it and say, okay, now's probably not the time. Like it's a three, one game. There's uh, I don't know, eight minutes left in the second. Let's just kind of bring this home. Let's get, get through to the intermission and we'll go from there. Uh, players and teams don't necessarily think that way as much. Yeah. The Instagram era is a good one. I've been, uh, I've been working on some stuff ahead of the CHL top prospects game. Because there's just an, an outrageous mess of high-end forward talent coming out of this city right now. So I've been talking to a lot of these guys. And what's amazing to me is, like, to a man, they spent a ton of time on YouTube. Like, when I was growing up, it was like, if I didn't see a sick goal at 9 p.m. on the early showing of, of SportsCenter, I was, I was out of luck. Like I wasn't going right. to see the goal and maybe someone would bring it up, but I, you know, I wasn't going to see it until, uh, I, you know, Saturday night. Yeah. Now, now these guys are, you know, able to look up 10 sickest Pat Kane deeks ever and then go on the ice the next day and, and try it. Right. And, and so you've got things like Connor Bedard, the light goes off for him when he sees Austin Matthews drag shot and he spends hours and hours in his backyard perfecting it, and now he's got a shot unlike anything we've ever seen, right? Yeah. Andrew Crystal kid with his puck handling, like on and on down the line. These guys are learning high-level skills at a younger age in part because of the accessibility. Well, 
let let me like let me first and foremost be on it. I love the skill stuff. Like I love that kind of stuff. Like I was a kid who was on YouTube looking at Drew Doughty di- videos. Like I was, <laughs> I was, I was in Sudbury playing playing for the Wolves, and like after dinner, I would pretend I was doing homework. I was on YouTube watching Drew Doughty's rookie year do spinoramas, make guys look silly. Like I loved it, but I kind of knew that that wasn't my game. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like as much as I loved it. I wanted to practice it all the time. Um, and I, I love the skill that the guys have. Like, and, and you know what? You need to have that kind of skill. We talked about it right off the top. Like, you know, the difference between the, the Vancouver defense and a lot of other teams' defense is how quick defensemen can process and execute. And a lot of it has to do with that, right? Like, you're fully immersed in learning about the game and wanting to get better. And so, you know, wherever you draw your inspiration from and whatever drives you and pushes you, I think that's huge. I want to ask you about a, def- a defenseman since you're, since you're the back end savant here amongst the three of us, Eric Carlson, um, like just an incredible season that he's having after a couple of years where it looked like it was over for him yeah. and the contract was bad. The situation he was in was bad. Everything was bad. And now he's on a hundred point pace. And the reason I asked that is because last year, you know, we saw a, a slight uptick in Oliver Ekman Larson's performance relative to what he showed us his last couple of years in Arizona. And now it's, it's worse than it was even then. And he's 31. I mean, Carlson's 32. Is yeah. there any way based on what you're seeing that they can just have a lifeline on OEL's deal and he can just have a couple of decent years? I, you know what? I don't know. I don't think so far. And I'll tell you why Eric Carlson at his prime at his healthiest was so dynamic. Like the ceiling for him is, was so high um, when he was at his best and he was unhealthy. Like he was hurt and he was playing hurt and he was trying to get back to healthy. And you hear him talk this year and he says, I've never felt better. And so, you know, when, when you kind of package that up, the fact that he says he's never felt better and he's finally healthy, he's on his way to hitting that, that higher ceiling that he does have. Oliver Ekman Larson, very good defenseman, been around the National Hockey League a long time, but he doesn't have the ceiling that Eric Carlson has. So even if he did get No, but the expectations are different, right? Like I'd never expect him to get 80 points, but could he get to a level where he's just not a complete liability in defensive transition? Listen, that's that's an internal thing for him. Like if if he if he can get healthy and find a step, like I don't I I know he's had injuries in the past because I've seen him rehabbing with that. I think there, there's a guy out in Philly that's really good at rehabbing and Arizona was sending guys there for the longest time. I think Chikrin went there a couple times. Um, but it's, it's tough. Like you, it's amazing what health can do, right? Because if you're always trying to rehab injuries and you're just trying to get back to even par, right? Like you spend your whole summer just getting there. You don't actually make up any ground and everyone below you or everyone, you know, all your peers are basically getting better, getting ahead of you, younger guys finding a step. And you're like, well, I just need to find a way to keep up. Like, and, and I hope for the player, you know, like mentally and, and physically, he can get to that point because, you know, he, Oliver Ekman Larson was a very good player for a long time and still can be. I just, I just think it's so health related and just, you know, starting a summer feeling really good. And then maybe you can find a step from there. Yeah, the the step thing is key for him in my view because right now it 
It's not the mistakes. It's not anything. That's, a, they, that's the same. That's the same fart we heard in the broadcast answer. Yeah, <laughs> that's the squeaky toy my dog's yammering at. That's <laughs> oh. why I keep. That's why I keep muting. Um, but no, the uh, the thing is, is it's when you're just a step behind. You know, all of a sudden, it's like the puck that he should handle cleanly gets bobbled, and he loses the second, and it puts everyone in a tougher position. And when you're a defenseman, you know the smallest little things contribute to an environment where you're, you're not contributing to the environment where your team's more likely to score the next goal. And well, I'll, feels I'll to put it like to you not. this way. Like, so I played, I played my last two years in Europe halfway through my second to last season was in Sweden. I tore, basically tore my adductor right off the bone. Oof. And for some reason I had to come back in a certain amount of time or whatever, like, and, and I played and, I was, I was slow. I was in pain. And it's like, if the initial, whatever my initial movement was, if that didn't, if that wasn't correct, it was very, very hard to, to recover from that. Right. And then, so my next year, um, in Riga, Latvia in the KHL, it was same thing. My hip, it was in a really bad way. And it was like, I really needed to think my way around the ice. Like I couldn't get around with my legs anymore, which was, you know, as Drancer kind of pointed to a little, like yeah, that, that was my, my bread and butter. Right. Like, and it's hard, man. Like if you take one wrong step and you're a thinker and it doesn't go your way, it doesn't execute properly more often than not, you're on the wrong side of it. And it's really hard to recover. Um, so, and, and the thing about the NHL, it's unforgiving. Like it is unforgiving and guys, guys are so good. Guys are so quick. Things happen so fast out there. Um, so, you know, if you don't have, you know, you don't have it with your feet that day and your brain's a a step behind, good luck, man. You're going to get exposed really quick. Yeah. Well, one thing, one thing, by the way, Frank, that I love about watching NHL players, and this was unique for me as an experience to watching the training camp before the bubble where teams brought, you know, 50 guys for training camp and then had scrimmages because they were gearing up for playoff games. Like it was really like, unlike any environment I'd ever seen before, because you've got these 19 year old players playing with NHLers who are gearing up for the playoffs and in scrimmages and there's no cuts coming. It's like night after night, you've got to play regardless of what's sort of uh, your performance level. You're not, you're not going to get cut. You just have to be there to help guys tune up. And and that environment, NHL players, guys like, you know, Chris Tanev, Bo Horvat, guys who've been around, it really showed for me, and I knew this anyway, but the way that NHL players probe for weakness, they are genius level. They are genius level at figuring out where they can beat you, where they have the mu- most minute edge. And it, it just feels like once you're a defenseman who's lost a step, NHL players are just going to constantly take you wide. Like they well, and, and Chris Tanev is such a good example of that because he does it as a defenseman. He does it from the back end mm-hmm. and he's, he, he's that guy. Like he's that guy that processes things just way faster than you. Right. And he can, this is one thing I love about Chris Tanev. You can come a million miles an hour at him and maybe, maybe it looks like you're going to put him through the boards and he'll hold on to that puck just a split second long enough for you to move your stick. And he knows you're going to do it or he at least can anticipate <laughs> that you're going to do it. And he'll just kind of slip it under you. And it just, it seems like no big deal. But it, if you watch it from a defenseman's point of view, you're like, that was so skilled. You know, like that was so good. And he mm. does two or three of those a night. 
Um, or, you know, a couple times a night where he kind of just has it on his backhand and you think it's a nothing play. And next thing you know, he kind of just popped it to the middle of the ice. And you're like, wait a second, they just broke out clean just because he, you know, he had the presence of mind to exploit something that, you know, maybe someone would have been a little too eager or a little too rushed. And I think that the brain is really, really what separates NHLers from AHLers from East Coast Hockey League players. It really is because, you know, I played in the AHL, played in the NHL, played in Sweden, played in the KHL. You can only skate so fast. You know what I mean? Like everyone skates basically the same speed. Everyone shoots the puck pretty much at the same speed. Like everyone shoots the puck, you know, the same. It's, it's how quick can you process it and how quick can you execute off that? That's really the difference. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, hey, let's move to some user questions before you make me miss watching Chris Tanev on a nightly basis more. Um, we've got one in the chat from Taylor K. before we go to the stage. And this is really everyone's last chance to raise their hand if they want to ask Frank a question directly. But we've got one from Taylor in the chat. And he asks, Frank, your top teams, lines, players that you're enjoying watching this season? Ooh, okay. So two of my favorite teams are playing right now. Like, I... I, you guys are going to hate me, but I, I like watching the Maple Leafs. I just think that the level that they execute at every loves single, <laughs> the, the, the execution level that they play at every single night is really impressive. The thing I like the Jets, like what I like about the Jets is they have played so many games this year and they're not playing one tonight because they're down three nothing, but they've played so many games this year where they play the exact same way over the 60 minutes. And I think that's, something like teams will tend to not do like you'll see like ah they'll kind of rush some things or they'll they'll take some chances maybe when they shouldn't you can see oh maybe a team scored a goal in a certain way and it kind of knocks them off their game it's like doesn't matter the score doesn't matter the situation it's like the same game plan over and over and they're okay you know playing a 0-0 game and eventually they they find a way to win um obviously i love i like watching boston like just something about boston it's amazing how many like one-on-one battles they come up with right and it really helps their game too like it just feels like they always have the puck and if they don't have the puck they made it very very difficult for you to come up with it so it's hard for you to kind of um transition quick um and who else i I actually i I watched seattle a couple times this year i was pretty impressed with seattle i was skeptical um just because of you know maybe i thought they were gonna have a like jamie noodles mclennan likes to call it a market correction and i thought they were probably due for a market correction but they just have such a well distributed balanced offensive attack 
and they break out the puck really clean. Like I was looking up a stat the other day. I wanted to know the top five teams um, in the league as, as far as controlled exit success rate go. And Seattle was fifth place. And so I was like, okay, well, no wonder, right? They get out of their zone clean. They have a lot of the same kind of player up front um, and they have a really even attack. So there's just a few. Yep. Yep. Okay. We're going to invite our first talker to the stage. This is Todd H. Let's see if this works. Todd, do you have us? Hey, do you guys hear me? We do. Thanks, Todd. What's your question? Right on. I just got uh, one question, but just a couple of quick comments. Uh, wanted to say, Farhan, been a big fan of you since uh, the TSN Sports Desk days. You're always my Canucks go-to. Uh, Thank and it's you. Even, it's even better listening to you now doing Manscaped ads, so awesome stuff. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, uh, Frankie Garato, I'm a big hockey card guy. I got lots of you from uh, uh, from the Payne days. Uh, excellent to uh, to listen to you. And uh, like the comments say, uh, you're a pro, man. Uh, we definitely want to hear you more on this side of the uh, of this side of the of the country. Uh, even though that uh, the center of the universe got you in the in the middle there. So, <laughs> uh, Drancer, uh, I need uh, my question is to you because I need some rational thinking and uh, I need you to to calm me down. With the, all the teams knowing how uh, the situation with Bo Horvat, or at least I think they would, uh, maybe they're not as following the market as uh, us Canucks fans, but is, is it even conceivable that we won't get a return or a decent return for Bo Horvat, Bo Horvat because all the teams know that he's just going to walk at the end of the year? Like, are, Is anyone going to be giving up, or is there any inkling to give up like uh a first rounder and a prospect or, or any of the rumors that I heard uh, for someone that everyone knows that we can't sign. He's going to be uh, on them uh, available on July 1st. So I just can't see all these returns coming back that I've been hearing. So I was just looking for your, uh, your, the Drancer thoughts. Yeah. Uh, happy to help Todd. Uh, thank you so much for your questions and comments, especially for uh, ripping Farhan on his manscaped reads. Um, Okay, they're, so, they're great. They're great reads. I edit they them are, like there. That. You kill it. It's 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 hard work, but someone's got to do it anyway. I've, I've got to um, edit the word ball at least five times from those ads, just so you know. <laughs> okay, so regarding Bo Horvat's trade value, it's going to be there regardless of whether or not teams think that they can sign and keep him. Because even if you're just talking about a rental, you're talking about a rental who takes. You know, more faceoffs than just about anyone in the league, wins 58% of them, uh, is third in the NHL in goals scored, can be counted on to play a matchup role. It plays a premium position, has a reputation within the industry as a good guy, a team first guy, and a big game player every time he's been in the playoffs at just about any level. So even if teams are valuing Bo Horvat as a rental, the rental market for Bo Horvat is going to be robust. I mean, I still think you're looking at, you know, uh, Matt DeShane from Columbus to Ottawa, or sorry, from Ottawa to Columbus, where you're talking about a first, um, an additional conditional pick, an additional pick, and a top prospect. That that sort of starter starter price for a rental. Now, obviously, it's better if you can sell him like J.P. Pajot or Mark Stone uh, or Max Pacioretty, where you're talking about like prospect, really good draft pick, maybe an NHL player or like a low end NHL player and maybe another asset, uh, that would require an extension. 
Um, but, you know, teams typically value the certainty that comes with getting the bird in hand and getting it done now, right? It's rare that a team is willing to just like wait and take their chances on the open market, even if they think that player wants to come to them, right? I mean, maybe it's different once you're, once you're like, um, uh, the Canucks analogy would be Dan Hamhuse, right? Remember all those teams traded for Dan Hamhuse's exclusive negotiating rights? And the Canucks weren't going to because they were pretty confident that they had a inside track <laughs> to landing him, which obviously they did. This is the summer of 2010. I think his, I think his rights were traded Nashville to Philly to Pittsburgh. Um, so, you know, I, I think that I think the teams would value getting the bird in hand. And even if they are not doing the trade with an extension in hand, if you want to keep him, you get him, you, you know, you have some playoff success or, or you're not a playoff team. You'd have to have the extension hand. But if you're a playoff team, you get him as a rental, you maybe have some success. You show him around. He sees what life is like on the other side. You, you take your chances as a team with the inside track. Now, I, you know, all along this process, I've, I've reported that I expected the Canucks to be pretty skeptical about giving potential trade partners the opportunity to talk extension uh, with Bo Horvat. It's complicated considering the amount of bidders, but Todd, you can rest assured Bo Horvat's going to demand a haul on the open market, regardless of his contract status. Uh, I promise you that. You guys have anything to add? No, I don't. I'm, you know, I stay away from the insider game. That's not my thing. I said something, <laughs> I said something wrong on a, uh, I was doing a Habs panel recently and I said something wrong. So I, I, I refrain from any kind of insider talk at all now, strictly analysis. And yeah. for me, it's just, are you sure it's not too late to trade JT Miller instead? And you know that. So <laughs> that's not, it's, it's too late. So here we are. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know you're going to miss Bo Farhan. Oh, we all are. But they, they have to, they have to do it. Even if they hadn't done the Miller, thousand, even if they hadn't done the Miller percent. deal, you had to do thousand it. Like, percent. You should have done it. You, they should have done both. Anyway, here's Richard. We'll invite Richard up to the stage. Hopefully it works. Sometimes we have issues. Richard, you got us? Okay, is that is that is that working? We got you. Awesome. All right. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, I got two quick questions for you guys. Uh, you know, long-time listener, first-time caller. Lovely to be on the air. <laughs> um, <clears throat> the first one I'll direct at uh, Drance real quick here. So you're a uh, on-the-record hater of the flying skate and the rest of us with better taste will try not to uh, hold that against you so uh, i'm wondering if you like the new jerseys and the new uh color scheme well enough like what logo would you slap on the uh rest of the jersey there and a uh, second question too is um we talked a lot about, about jt miller his uh, leadership qualities what he brings to the uh locker room how he runs hot and cold and all that uh, but as far as OEL is concerned, um, we know we're not really getting a lot of great performance out of him for probably the remainder of his contract. But uh, the Sedins thought highly of him. So I'm wondering, like, what he's bringing to the locker room, what he can bring to, you know, new players coming into the system, learning defense and uh, that sort of thing. OK, so the flying skate jersey, I'd probably put any other logo on. Like, what? why not a black, red and um, yellow version of the Orca? I'm okay with Johnny Canuck. I just think the flying skate logo is indecipherable. Like I, I just can't, I mean, I can tell what it is cause I've been around long enough, but it's like Canucks spelt out on the skate blade, like spaghetti skates, like no skates are striped. It doesn't make sense. I just don't like the logo. I, I think the logo is an atrocity. So, um, you know, any other logo, I do like the black 
red and yellow color scheme, though. What what do you think of the uh, new logo or the new jerseys last night, Frank? Um, takes. I love I love the color scheme. I love the black. I played against Vancouver one night when they originally did the free the skate, and I thought it was um, it was a really sharp look. Not to say that it was intimidating. You're in the NHL. You shouldn't be intimidated by other teams' jerseys, but it was it was a sharp look to play against. I'll be honest with you. The reverse retros they have this year, like Jay Onright said it, that should be their jersey with that that Johnny Canuck and the number on the front. I like it. I think that's the best jersey they've ever made. Well, for me, as, as far as the skate's concerned, I didn't like it then, you know, when, when they had it. And if they're going to bring it back, I'd like them to at least do it right because there's no white in it as an accent color. They need to bring that back. And they've got a kind of a newer age font versus what they had before. So you're either going to go with what, what people remember back then or don't do it, right? So they kind of put their own little version on it, and, and I don't like it. I, I, I loved the new I loved the new version of it. And then the other question, I, I always forget what the other question is. When uh, I know, uh, and I, I remember. Here, I, I, can, I can give you a little insight on that. Like, okay. it, you know, generally speaking, if the Sedin twins are such stand-up guys, right? We all know that. If, if they're given a character report on someone, generally it's, it's probably going to be pretty substantiated. So for a guy like Ekman Larson, you know, if you're probably not getting the best performance on the ice, he's probably... Like he's probably one of those guys that keeps that locker room. I don't want to say fun, right? But like keeps it a little more free flowing, a little easier, easier going guy to talk to on the back end. Like if you're a younger player, if you're that Ethan Bear, you're Quinn Hughes, you can kind of talk to him about little things maybe you've seen over the years, you've experienced. It's like it's a nice guy to have around. Like it's nice to have guys that are, um, lower maintenance in that way you know where you can just kind of have conversations and, and it doesn't feel like it's so um um just so difficult to talk to guys yeah one thing about oliver ekman larson too is he's a lovely guy um like he's a very good guy to deal with from a media side and all reports just an absolute sweetheart as a, as a human being um you know i i do sort of wonder about i guess the thing i wonder about and it's sort of as a foil to you know some of the issues we're we're seeing right now is like at some point you know it does feel like you're going to need a counterbalance personality to jt miller right like you're going to need someone i think who can keep everyone on task effectively right uh, from what i understand markstrom and tanov had been that in the past uh in terms of being able to be like hey like you have to calm down. This is what we have to do. You know, at some point, this club's going to need someone with enough stature and the sort of personality to, to you know, um, reflect, I suppose. A, a different but you also need to, in order to have that cash, in order to have that cachet in the room where you can do that effectively, you still have to be playing the game at a certain level. Yeah, right? yeah and, no question. And, and we know that he did come into the season a little bit banged up, you know, early on in the year. You, you knew he was dealing with something. You know, I, I don't know if there's still, you know, Frankie talked about that one extra step, if he can get that back next off season because he's not that old yet. Like, there has to be a little more juice to squeeze out of that orange over the next few years of this contract. Um, so hopefully he can at least get his game to that point where he can then also assert that level of influence because once Bo leaves and once Luke Shen leaves, there ain't nobody left in that room that that has any level of, of maturity and cachet that goes with it, right? So, you know, you hope that he can live up to that with his play. 
All right, guys, we've been doing this for an hour. We, you know what? We have one other question. Uh, just a period is, is the, um, is the respondent or, or respondent, the person with their hand raised? They did have their hand raised earlier, so I'm going to allow it. This will be our last question and then we'll, and then we'll call it a day. Um, unnamed caller. Do you have us? Uh, can you hear me? We can. Great. Um, thanks so much. Love you guys. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know why I'm a dot or, uh, whatever, but, uh, um, that must be uh, something with my account, but I just, I want to ask you guys a little bit about management and, um, also just ownership and I don't want to get you guys in trouble, but, um, how much of like Rutherford's insistent on being like retooling and not rebuilding is him. And do you think ownership is influencing that? I think. So, like there's so many reports about that and is ownership even involved in potentially the Rick Tockett um, uh, um, potential hiring. So I just wanted to guide, to ask about that and uh, what your thoughts are on that. Thanks. Real, yeah, real quickly. For and I think the, the difference between retool and rebuild, that's, that's kind of semantics. I feel like, you know what I mean? And like, I know Jim Rutherford stepped into Pittsburgh. The thing he stepped into, though, had Sidney Crosby and had Evgeny Malkin. Like, he had he had a serious core there already. He had to kind of build around it, and they became such a impressive kind of plug-and-play organization where they had guys ready in the minors to come up and play and uh, contribute to their team. Like, I, I just don't know if that's the case here, and I think that's part of, you know, when he talks about major surgery versus minor surgery, I think that's kind of what he is getting at a little bit to a point where he probably looked at the core and was like, okay, there's, there's, let's say four or five pieces here that I can really build around. And he's like, wait a second. Now, now my captain's going out the door. Um, you know, I, I got a hot and cold guy in JT Miller. I got, you know, so there, there's a, a lot of different factors at play. Um, very different than his Pittsburgh retool. And as far as ownership here is concerned and, and Drancer, you can tell me if I'm way off on this. I don't think ownership is driving Jim Rutherford's timeline and strategy. I think he really believes this is the way to go with this team. Uh, I, you know, and, and part of that might be his age. I don't know because he, you know, he didn't come into this for a, a five or six year rebuild, but I really believe that this is what he wants. And it just happens to be exactly what ownership wants to hear or has prescribed to previously. As far as the ownership or as far as the coaching situation is concerned, uh, I know Irfan Gafar is reporting tonight that, you know, ownership is not getting in the way of any decision that's going to be made right now regarding Boudreaux and or Tockett. Uh, did they have any influence on the timeline to this point, perhaps in terms of what they wanted to pay and how they wanted to handle that? But, um, I, you know, I, I certainly believe that, uh, Jim Rutherford was heavily, sorry, Jim Benning was heavily guided by ownership. I'm not sure that's the case with Jim Rutherford. I'll tell you this much just from knowing how NHL teams operate. I would be stunned if ownership wasn't involved in recruiting and negotiating. With a with a well, especially the recruitment side, meeting with uh, any coaching candidate sure. to replace anybody. I mean, that's that's and that's not abnormal. That would be like I would be stunned if at some point before, whether it's Talkit or anyone else, and obviously it's going to be Talkit, but I'm just trying to couch it because that's how you do the insider game, Frankie. Frankie just letting you know. Um, but the the fact is, is that ownership would be involved in that portion of it. I'd be pretty surprised though if there was a real holdup from ownership side on this. That would that would surprise me um, were that to be the case. Not that I not that I'm repudiating some of what was reported today, guys. Hey, we, I'm, I've we got do a one question. More? 
we've got Cheryl M on the stage, and I'm tempted. Okay, to and, let then, her and then I have one for Frankie after that. Okay, so we're we're winding down, but we're gonna do Cheryl, and then Farhan has a question. Cheryl, do we have you? Yes, you do. Thank you very much. Um, What's your question, Cheryl? Uh, my question is, what is your assessment, Frank, about a, a trade with the Maple Leaf for Lilligren and Kerfoot? Um, would that be an adequate package for Go Horvath? Yeah, I, I wonder Thanks, about Cheryl. that. That's, that is a good question. Like Kerfoot doesn't move the needle for, you know, for anyone. I don't think around the <laughs> league, like he's, he's more of just a, just a guy, complimentary guy, like uh, pretty versatile, but you know, nothing, nothing crazy there with Kerfoot. I think Lilligren, they really like Lilligren and he's played really well. Like at times this year, he's been a, like a calming influence on Morgan Riley, you know, and that's saying a lot because like Morgan's been a really good player in this league for a long time. And, and Lilligren's, you know, he's a younger guy. I think he's got a, a bigger ceiling than, than most people might suspect. Um, I would imagine, you know, when, when Jim Rutherford talks about getting, you know, younger players that are NHL ready in return, like Lilligren definitely fits that bill, but I would imagine it's got to be more than that for Horvat. Like that's, you know, that you gotta, you gotta swing for the fences. You gotta come up with a way bigger haul than Kerfoot. Who's kind of just, you know, he's, he's a player and Lilligren who, you know, has potential to be a really good defenseman. You need more than that. I think the Canucks would need more than that. But I honestly yeah. think there's an argument to be made that in a world where Brandon Hagel costs two firsts and Lilligren is a right-handed defenseman playing top four minutes right now on a good team, making 1.6 this year and next and RFA on the other side. I mean, I think there's an argument to, to be made that Lilligren might have more trade value outright than Bo Horvat, as wild as that is to think. That's I, the, uh, the cap league for you right there. Yeah, right? Like, it seems like a preposterous thing to say, but I suspect there'd be a lot of teams around the league that would look at the two and say the acquisition cost of, um, you know, the like the, they wouldn't do Lilligren for Horvat straight up. My guess would be that the Maple Leafs would be one of them. And I don't know that Lilligren would hold any interest for the Canucks either, to be totally honest with you. So, um, you know, it's hard to figure out what the fit would be. I mean, Kerfoot seems like the obvious one, but, you know, Kerfoot, Nimala, uh, something else in a pick, is that enough for Bo Horvat? I suspect the market would be pretty disappointed by that, particularly because, and I didn't know this, but I learned it yesterday because I didn't know this. Do you know Alex Kerfoot's older than Bo Horvat? Yeah. I didn't know that. I was blown away. Oh, yeah. Blown away. <laughs> I, I, I went to the same high school, but I'm blown away by that. That's funny. Uh, Frankie, long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, oh. You know, when we, when, we have, when we have Juice on, we know you're going to pass him on the, you know, on the scale of, of elite media in this country pretty quick. But, you know, we talk about his memories of Vancouver. Now, you played, like, what, 28 games or something like that with the Canucks over three years. But the time that you were here... It was really as everything was kind of decelerating, right? They'd been through the back-to-back President's Trophies and the one trip to the finals, and then it was kind of going downhill from there, and they were trying to hang on to it. And I know there was a lot of talk about Frankie Corrado coming in and kind of being the guy at some point to to you know be a, a significant piece of that blue line because you know they needed a guy like you. You were a late round pick to kind of come in and and um, you know maybe that could be their found money and. 
what do you remember about your time in Vancouver and just what things were like then and the intensity and passion around the team and what you had to deal with? Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, people ask me that often actually. And, and here's, you know, kind of long story short, when I got drafted by that team, there was such a like Canucks way of doing things that was really impressive. And it was really like instilled upon you early on, you know, upon development camp and rookie camp and all that kind of stuff. It was really cool. Like it really felt like you were a part of something special. And I think after AV got fired, Rick bonus got fired. Then Mike Gillis got fired and torts came in that, you know, we all know how that kind of stuff went. Like the team really got away from that, you know, and, and, and it changed so much. And like, you know, Farhan, like I was there, I had three head coaches in my two years of professional hockey there. I had AV, I had torts, I had Willie Desjardins. I had two general managers. I had two different presidents of hockey operations. That's all from ages you know, 18, you want to call it to 22. Um, so, you know, it's kind of, and, and people talk about player development, right? Like player development, like players didn't develop. Well, kind of a two way street, man. Like, you know, like teams need to invest in player development. It doesn't just happen. It's not just a formality. And, you know, I, I think it, you know, you probably saw with myself and other players that were, you know, drafted in that era, you, you get lost in the shuffle, you, you lose, you know, you don't make the most of your opportunity. Right. And like, it's a very difficult league. We've talked about that before. Uh, You know, some guys are going to be NHLers no matter what other players, you know, they need a lot of things to go right. It's the best league in the world. Everyone's coming for your job every single day. Like you need a lot of stuff to go your way. If you want to establish yourself as an NHLer and you know, if, if, you know, seven out of 10 or six out of 10 things go your, your way, you're, you're, you're on the outside looking in. Right. So it was, it was a, it was a very, like, it was a big transition period for the team. And, and, you know, like if you're kind of left over from a different regime, you don't necessarily get the same looks, you don't get the same opportunities. And I, I listen, I'm very grateful for my time in Vancouver and the fact that I even got to play one game with the Canucks. I mean, that was unbelievable. That's a dream come true, but it was it was a really weird time to be entering the league and trying to make a name for yourself because of all the, you know, all the stuff going around. I remember there was a game against Minnesota. I know I'm getting long winded here. There was a game against Minnesota at home. I tore my oblique in the first period. At the end of the first period, I finished the game and I couldn't move. But it was like a stabbing pain in my side, and I just I was just like I'm I'm not giving up this opportunity because I know like I I just these opportunities are not coming around. And uh, the next day we had a skate, we had a morning skate or a practice. I went on the ice and the, the, the pain was so bad. So I ended up getting off the ice. I went, got MRI, sure enough, torn oblique. I missed the next like four to six weeks um, and then played a couple games and then got sent down. And that was it. Never played again as a Canuck. And like, that's kind of like a little bit into my mindset. It was like, I would rather play through like a stabbing pain in my oblique than give up this opportunity. Um, so, I mean, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, like that's kind of how the way it, it, it went, like it, it sucks. But, um, at the end of the day, I can sit here now and say how grateful I was that I actually did get that opportunity to play in the NHL and play in Vancouver. Like I, I, I still hold Vancouver, um, you know, very closely in my heart. Well, the, the, my takeaway from it, you know, in terms of the, the Canuck side of, of that story versus the, the Frankie Corrado side of the story is 
they did things a certain way and they got away from that. Right. Yeah. Yes. No yeah. question. No yeah. question. And, and Frankie, among, among your many legacies in Vancouver, I think you might have been my first in-person interview as a, as an athlete, like as a subject when I came out to Sudbury or was it Brampton? I came out Brampton. to Brampton. Yeah. yeah. It was the Brampton and, Battalion and Power Center. Yeah. yeah. And I remember I'm, I was like, Dave Gagne was there. Did you have hair there? After. I had, oh, I had so much hair and, and oh, wow. <laughs> the worst neck beard you'll ever see. Um, I actually think it's on YouTube, but, uh, but you know what? You know what? It was so long ago. It was for the replace the KB contest, Farhan. That's how wow. long ago it was. But yeah, uh, crazy, crazy to think. Yeah. I'd love to see what you're doing in the media game. It was clear even then that you'd be a great talker, my friend. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for, ev- thanks to everybody who joined us and to a- ask Frank questions, asked us questions. Always fun to chat with everybody in this format, even when it's a little buggy, even when it's a little buggy. Um, so, so thanks to everybody, and a special thanks, of course, to Mr. Frank Dorado, young and up-and-coming star on, you know, I'll let Farhan say what network it is. Uh, on TSN, yeah, Canada Sports Leader. <laughs> Wait, hey, can, hey, I, can hey, I sign off like this? Farhan yeah, Lalji, TSN, Vancouver. <laughs> we don't say that anymore. You know, we, we don't even do that. We, like, I can't remember the last time I actually did a story that required a sign-off. Like, usually now we're allowed to come in and, and analyze and, and contextualize yeah. and do all of this stuff. Like, I, I can't remember the last time I said that, but it certainly was signature because when I started, it was David Pratt, right? And David Pratt used to, he'd feel like David Pratt, TSN, and then he'd have a little pause and he'd lean into camera, Vancouver. And so we always used to kind of <laughs> ch- chuckle about that. He'd kind of rotate his shoulder and lean into the camera. But yeah, we, I can't even remember. That would have been back in your era when you were here in Vancouver. So, uh, yeah. But hey, yeah. listen, I, I love that we're on the same team, and uh, thanks so much for doing this, bud. And and also, we should let the VIPs know that Harm and I will do an episode of the VanCast on Monday, but given what might be happening, the time might be fluid. Right. So maybe, and may ha- who knows, maybe we'll end up doing a live room as well. So could be yeah. an interesting day for the Canucks right. on Monday. Thanks to everybody for joining us. All the best. Good night.